I'm Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words. And this week, it is our awesome 80s edition. Oh, yeah. It was a decade that was highly revered by some, much maligned by others. (laughs) Today, we try to stuff in as many 80s acts as we possibly can in a single show. And joining me now, as always, co-host and creator of the show, Tom Jokic, who's sporting his flock of seagulls haircut. And I'm sporting leg warmers. Christopher, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Okay, this has been a ton of fun to put together. Some of these acts firmly belong to the 80s, and some have transcended that decade. And Christopher, you and I have even had some arguments about these artists as we've put this show together. Thankfully, we are several thousand miles apart at this moment. You are in Hollywood, California. I'm in Canada in January. But I think the distance is necessary to maintain our friendship, okay? Yes, well, it's it's going strong, fortunately. (laughs) So... Coming up this week, we have some great stuff from Duran Duran, The Bangles, OMD, Martha and the Muffins, many more. Many of these interviews are from right when those artists were about to take off, so it's really an interesting moment in their careers. And we have an outstanding clip from George Michael talking about a Wham! project that never came to pass, but it's a great moment nonetheless. So let's get started with our awesome 80s edition of Famous Lost Words. We begin with Duran Duran. Well, Tom, when the Fab Five hit Much Music in 1984, true pandemonium ensued in the street outside the studio. Now, video had been very good to Duran Duran, and they knew exactly how to work that young audience of theirs. They also had hit songs, and they gave great interviews. Often, Water Pistols and Cake were involved. (laughs) Now, the initial Duran Duran explosion didn't last, of course. It never does. But they went on to have an unexpectedly long run for a group that was initially dismissed as a band of the moment. They sold over 100 million records. The Bangles, Bare Naked Ladies, Beck, Gwen Stefani, and Justin Timberlake have all said they are fans of Duran. Now, this series of interviews, not dated, are with various band members and likely are from about 1982 Mm. around the release of Rio, their second album. This record struggled initially, but helped by club play and, of course, those very stylish videos, it finally broke through. It went on, like the first album, to sell double platinum in Canada. The interviewer here asks about, of course, the origin of the band name. May I ask where the name Duran Duran comes from? Yeah, it's from a 60s science fiction film uh, in Britain called Barbarella. Oh, yes. Starring Jane Fonda and Milo O'Shea. And Milo O'Shea was a character called, uh, called Duran Duran in the film. Okay, so there you go. The name of the band came from the movie Barbarella. I do find it a little bit funny that they were so new to us that the announcer said, so where does the name Duran Duran come from? Like, I found that (laughs) quite funny. Sorry, I got distracted thinking about the opening of Barbarella. (laughs) So what else do we have from Duran Duran? Well, Nick says that early on they were concerned with their longevity. When you get tied to one trend, you, you, you tend to die when that trend dies. And we have no intention of doing that sort of thing, really. I think uh, bands that have been roped in with trends in the past, well, like the Beatles, who were roped in with the Mersey Beat thing, like like the Clash were roped in with the punk thing, that, uh, the better bands of the trends mm-hmm. tend to rise to the top, but all the same, we'd rather not be bagged in with these. You know, this is a common theme, Christopher. So many bands around this era tried to distance themselves from the new wave or punk label, and Duran was saddled with the new romantic tag as well. He also points out that the band was fashionable 
but not to the exclusion of more important things. It was around the time that we were coming out being a fashionable band. Um, a few other fashionable bands were coming out too. And I thought, right, we'll put this lot together. And of course we got put in with Spando Ballet and Visage. We're a long, long way away from them musically. Uh, fashionably in the first place, we were a fashionable band and we still are. Mm-hmm. But we put our music before our fashion, which is something I know Spandau Ballet don't really do. Okay, so this is a completely different interview, I believe with John Taylor and Simon Laban. Don't sue me if we're wrong. <laughs> um, and they talked about Hungry Like the Wolf. Um, Hungry Like the Wolf. I think it's probably about uh, on, on the lookout for women. I think that one, uh, it was track that was sort of written in the studio uh-huh. one afternoon, written very quickly and uh, we did a video for it in Sri Lanka um, we do get a bout for our videos yeah, you really we've just do. been to Antigua actually doing one really? <laughs> no, listen, if you need any me. help yeah. ok, yeah, yeah, any direction <laughs> um, no, the, we did three in Sri Lanka and we did two in uh, Antigua and it's all going to be part of a video album which we expect to be out in November that obviously we want to sell to TV as yeah. well as make commercially available. It's very exciting. It's you know, good fun to do. This was a great era for them. You can tell how excited they are about how much they traveled for their videos. Like, even they can't believe it. Yeah, they went to some pretty exotic locales mm-hmm. for those videos. Mm-hmm. And they were very watchable as a result. Um, the origins of the band, Tom, go back to Birmingham, England. The Duran lineup, as it is now, has been together just over two years. But like before that, me and Nick had been sort of banging our heads against the wall for like two and a half years previous to that. Mm. And um, it just it just happened to click one day. We went to this um, club in Birmingham to do a gig. Basically, we wanted to get away from the regular gig scene, and we went we went to this sort of fairly upmarket chic club to try and get a gig there. <laughs> and uh, it. It turned out that the the guys who owned the place were interested in getting into group management and they heard the tapes and they'd sort of thought this is exactly what we wanted to get involved in and it's been downhill ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love how self-deprecating they are. Within a few months, they would become this pop idol phenomenon and at this moment, they have no idea how much their lives are about to change. And I love that they call themselves a dance band. I think people have always wanted to dance, haven't they? I mean, that's what the, that's what the Beatles were when they started. They were a ritual dance band. So the Rolling Stones. So was all the, the huge disco upsurgence in the late 70s. And I think it's just carried on. People like going out to dance, but they don't necessarily want to listen to music which hasn't got any any sort of anything more than a beat to it. So that's where we come in, because we, we play music that you can dance to, you can also listen to, because it's got a little bit more to it. So here they talk about the importance of being a live performance act. We had to play live. We had to. We had to prove ourselves to people that we could do it in the flesh, and we weren't just a sort of um, a product of the studio. And um, that's been to our advantage now. I mean, it's more honest, really, because you're standing up there on stage without any marketing techniques, without any um, image in between you and the people. You have to, you have to, you appear as yourself, what you really are, and they can touch you, they can see you, they're that close to you. And if you look like a fool, then they're going to know it. Duran Duran from a few different interviews here on Famous Lost Words and our Awesome 80s episode. Let's pick it up now with Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. So here's Roger Bartell, the interviewer, talking to Andy McCluskey from OMD in 1988 as they celebrated 10 years of being a band, something that Andy couldn't quite wrap his head around. It's kind of weird for us, 10 years as OMD. 
And people seem to think, you know, oh, electricity and all the gay. God, they must have been released in the 60s. You guys must yeah. be about 48 now. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, I'm a grand old man of British pop, but I'm 28. Sure, to some of your new fans, you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gonna... And a testimony to how long you guys have been around is the fact that you did a show in 1979 with Talking Heads headlining the bill. You guys were in the middle, and an unknown Irish group named U2 was at the bottom of the bill. Did they have that passion back in 1979 when you saw them during that show that they have now? I have to be perfectly honest that really, no, they just sounded like a punk band to me. Mm. I mean, I was never really into punk music, and nice guys as they were, because I can remember sitting on the staircase backstage, because the dressing room was so awful, you had to sit on the staircase, it was much nicer. Talking to Adam Clayton, seemed like nice guys, but it wasn't really kind of my, my type of music. But yeah. uh, they've done all right for themselves, you know. We offered them to, if they wanted to open for us, actually, on the summer tour we're planning to do this year, but they said they're kind of a bit busy. Yeah, you know? a little busy, yeah. Yeah. Along with this uh, Best of OMD uh, album that people can buy, they can also buy a video compilation mm. of the same name, which features 18 Orchestral Maneuver in the Dark videos. Are you happy with all 18 of these? No, basically. Is which, the ones, which ones would you like to leave off? Actually, probably Enola Gay is pretty awful. We're sort of chroma keyed flying across the clouds. And the other one is for, actually not a very old one, Talking Loud and Clear. That was I very... Mean, who persuaded us yeah. to get dressed up as scarecrows? I'll never know, but... oh. Would you, or do you have any future plans to ever be on a soundtrack again? The way you were with the song mm. If You Leave on the Pretty in Pink soundtrack, which really mm. was a barnstormer for the band. Uh, I don't think we really, you know, we did it, it was great, we're very fortunate. I don't really think we'll be rushing back to do if it If John Hughes asked you to be on his next <clears throat> movie soundtrack, you would say no? I think we would think very seriously about it. Um, I mean, not least because I really think it's about time John Hughes stopped doing teeny movies. I mean, I thought the music industry was messed up, but boy, wait till you meet film people. They haven't got a clue what's going on. <laughs> yeah, and to try and mesh the two. Oh, it's... Yeah, it's real. I mean, I don't know if you're aware of the story about the writing of If You Leave, but I mean, they gave us the script. They were still filming when we got offered the job. And um, Oh, they changed the end of the that's movie, That's right, they, they changed the end yeah. of the movie. We'd written them a song. We thought, great, how clever we are. All the lyrics fit into the uh, the final outcome the plot, of the movie. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it fits the plot perfect. We thought we were geniuses. And we get back there to L.A. to mix it, and they say, yeah, well, nice song, but um, well, we changed the end of the movie. It doesn't make sense anymore, guys. Mm. You know, We were given three days to completely write and record this new song off the top of our heads. Do you think they were trying to get rid of you by saying that, or they had a legitimate... Well, that was my initial impression, yeah. but then, you know like John Hughes and the director Howie Deutsch and even Molly Ringwald were quite sort of insistent that we do it so mm. we had a go and we got lucky for so once So you did another song and, and there it ends up being one of the biggest hits of your career Yeah, I know The trouble is though we kind of stitched ourselves up because now our management and the record company think we can write hit singles in three days like mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So Andy takes a bit of a shot at John Hughes and him doing his teeny movies um, He also takes a shot at OMD's own videos and Hollywood as well as their inability Ability to write a hit single in three days because that's what happened with If You Leave and of course now the record company goes oh these guys can just churn out a, a big hit in three days and that's very hard to do. This is Famous Lost Words, the awesome 80s edition. I'm your host Christopher Ward. Tom and I had a little discussion about one of the bands that he wanted to include in the show. Yes, and that band was Air Supply. <laughs> okay, so you and I are like duking it out 
over email about air supply. Are you going, seriously, are you trying to torture me? Yeah, it sure is. But, you know, I would like to argue that they were an awfully big band at the beginning of the 80s. I would also like to point out that someone from our listening audience requested an interview with air supply, so I dug that up for them. That was me. Thank you very much. No, it was definitely not you. And um, also, their first two hit singles, I actually think, are excellent. The first one, Lost in Love, and the second one, I'm All Out of Love. And I don't care if you agree with me, Christopher. What, what does Adam have to say about air supply? Or sorry, hair supply. <laughs> hair supply. You sent me the funniest picture of air supply. We have posted it on our social media, on Facebook and on okay. Twitter. The honestly, the worst picture and the worst hair mm. and the worst jackets, matching jackets that two guys could yeah. ever have. They have in this picture. It's excellent. So check that out on our social media. Can you Photoshop our faces into that photograph? <laughs> I'm, well, I'm still wearing the flock of seagulls hair, so we're going to have to really uh, do some good oh, work yeah. on that. Okay. So, Christopher, right. because you were so cranky about this whole thing, we're going to play one clip alone, and that's them talking <laughs> about their initial success with their first three or four hit singles. So here they are. So, <sighs> so here they are, Air Supply. We always had, uh, you know, a feeling that uh, Lost in Love, particularly if it was... Uh, presented properly in North America that it could be very successful for us, but uh, nobody in their wildest imagination, you know, could have realized that it would do so well so quickly. Uh, And, you know, the follow-up singles to that All Out of Love and Every Woman in the World did fantastic uh, business for us very quickly. So, you know, uh, all I can say now is that all the work that we've put in over the last six years, and we've played every place you could imagine uh, it's real nice, you know, to to finally be accepted in America and Canada. I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. (laughs) All right. This is the awesome 80s edition of Famous Lost Words. Time now to talk about the bangles. This goes back to 1986. Um, Our interviewer here is Rick Ringer, and he's talking to lead singer Susanna Hoffs on the phone. And this is just as Manic Monday, a song written by Prince, was becoming a big hit. From what I've been reading in uh, recent interviews in that, this is really what the Bengals had been striving for since the beginning, is to get a pop hit song. That's right. Um, Even the first night that I met Vicky and Debbie Peterson, they had been working with different people, and I'd been in different bands, more sort of art band kind of things and it was like what well, how big are your goals and I sort of said well the top you know we really want to go all the way and and I, I really want to go all the way and do uh, you know songs that will get on the radio and just go all the way with it and they said great because we want to too we just wanted to make sure you were into that and I don't know we just we just always felt that you know, we can do our own thing, and it's it's accessible at the same time, and there's never had to be any compromise in any way, but that our music is meant to be heard on the radio through the airwaves. Mm-hmm. Like well, all the greatest music that we grew up listening to, we mm-hmm. heard it on the radio. And what was some of that music? Oh, you know, Birds, Buffalo Springfield, Beatles, Dylan, Dusty Springfield, you know, all these, all these great bands that you heard in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting that you're talking about 60s because I have your recent Rolling Stone interview in front of me here where you were admitting that, uh, in fact, a lot of 70s music, especially yeah. Joni Mitchell stuff, influenced you as well. Oh, definitely. All that singer-songwriter stuff. And even bands like Led Zeppelin were really great. And all the late 70s, Sex Pistols, Ramones, Patti Smith, Iggy Pop, all these 
there's there's always influences all throughout, and you just you're sort of a melting pot. When you go to start your own band and write your own songs, you sort of take a little bit from all those people. But mm -hmm. I think I would safely say it started listening to the started in the '60s when we were little kids, driving around in, in the car and having the radio on, and that's that's what sort of first. That that was our first introduction to rock and roll. Well, you had to have really been little kids if you were hearing those uh, for the first time as original songs. Yeah, yes, four years old. Yeah, well, that's that's really nice. I think that you're you're not afraid to uh, ad admit that you know a, a whole well, actually, two generations of of music has has influenced your music because so many times bands get too caught up in well, a certain type of music was the best music or a certain era was the best and and really to be honest yeah it it, it comes down to a melting pot anyways and i mean there's there's a lot of bands that are considered cool to be into but i mean i don't know i just think there's a lot of good music all the time there's a lot of good music on the radio now it's been a great few years for i think for even for american bands too which for a long time all you were getting were english bands you know on mm -hmm. at least in america on the radio mm-hmm had you uh, been familiar with early Prince stuff? Had that been an influence at all? Actually, I didn't know a lot about the early Prince stuff. In fact, when when I met Prince, um, all I really knew was the stuff from Purple Rain. Mm -hmm. And then I've gone back now and heard some of the older records, and they're really great. But um, Michael Steele, our bass player, has all his records and, and was always up on everything that he did. Mm -hmm. So she must have been the one who was really excited when he came around then. She was so excited she couldn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> the problem when you're so excited you get you get uh, tongue tied. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, she knew about him. But I I was really into the I listened to the Purple Rain album every day for about a year. I think it's a great record. The song that he wrote for you, of course, is Medic Monday. Only he wrote it as Christopher. Was there any reason for that? I mean, uh, it, as far as it being a secret, well, maybe it was in the beginning, but it isn't now. Was it? Was that the reason for it in the first place for the pseudonym? Uh, I don't know. You'd have to ask him, and I just, I just sort of accepted it as something that he wanted to do, assuming that it tied in with the new movie, Under the Cherry Moon. I think that's his name in the movie. Maybe it was just to do it for fun. There you go. Brief interview from 1986, The Bangles on Famous Lost Words, our awesome 80s edition. Um, I've never met Suzanne Hoffs, and Christopher, I'm sure you'd never met her either, right? Well, we were in a band together. What? <laughs> we were in a band called Ming T. Baby. Oh wow! We were in the, yeah, we were in the Austin Powers movies one and three, and uh, we were the guitar players. <laughs> the That's crazy. And um, well, her husband Jay Roach directed um, the Austin Powers movies. I don't know if you remember that, <laughs> but she, I, I love Susanna. She's a wonderful person, and she was great. And we we ended up writing a whole bunch of songs together. Lamentably, she didn't record any of them because the record she was working on, I think she worked with the Tuesday Night Music Club guys, and they wanted to sort of get a fresh start on the material, which I understand. Mm -hmm. That's great. Oh my God, Christopher! Every time I think you've told me every one of your stories, there you are playing the oh i wrote songs with them card <laughs> all right I, I i won't talk about it anymore no please do and tell us every single story and we'll get to them eventually i'm sure this is the awesome 80s edition of famous lost words i'm tom jokic with christopher ward christopher we're talking about the 80s today but i want to go back to 1978 for this song Okay, so that's Hold the Line from Toto. 
one of the best debut songs from a band that really did make it big. But I got to tell you, that song was not indicative of what they ended up becoming. And to me, that's one of the great disappointments about the band Toto, because I love that rock sound, and they never really had another hit that sounded anywhere close to that. Okay. I I never (laughs) looked at it that way. I I have to go back and... uh... Refresh my Toto knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been around for over 40 years, so mm-hmm. they're going to uh, go through a few changes along the way. Now, they may never have been as omnipresent as they are now. I mean, they had those big hits that you referred to in the 70s and 80s, particularly from the first album with Hold the Line and uh, from uh, Toto 4, featuring songs like Rosanna, uh, I Won't Hold You Back, and Africa. So, Africa, let's talk about it. A truly <laughs> odd lyric. yes and an unforgettable melody have come back into the pop culture in 2018 courtesy of Weezer. Wow. (laughs) What? Yeah. Yes. They recorded Africa and had a billboard hit and then the original started getting played everywhere. Mm-hmm. I should mention that uh, Toto returned the favor by doing Weezer's song, Hashpipe. <laughs> I haven't heard that. Um, but there was an October Rolling Stone article from last year that was entitled How Toto's Africa Became the New Don't Stop Believing. Oh, wow. That's great. <laughs> so all of this, of course, didn't hurt their 40 Trips Around the Sun tour of last year. Now, they started in 76 as a band of session stalwarts who had worked with Michael Jackson, Sonny and Cher, Boz Skagg, Steely Dan, and so on. And you have to be good to get those calls. They went on to win six Grammys and sell over 40 million records. This interview around 1979, the time of Hydra, their second album, is with guitarist Steve Lukather. Mm -hmm. He starts by talking about the new album. We're still a relatively young band, as a band, not as players. Yeah. And we're still trying to, like find the the exact thing that we want to get into and since that we're all fairly school players we can play lots of different kinds of music so when we experiment sometimes it touches on different areas of the of music itself jazz rock and roll classical i mean you know it takes bands sometimes three or four albums to fall into something that they can call their own you know okay so they admit that it takes them a long time for a band any band to find their sound and i would argue that in a way they were almost too good too versatile to have a cohesive sound now of course Mm. toto 4 was a huge album for them and i really do like those songs you know i like rosanna i like africa as weird as that song is but they didn't really do much after that and i think that may have been a case of too many great cooks in one kitchen for them that's an interesting way of looking at it Mm. the idea that they knew too much yeah or somehow too uh, too accomplished because i think a lot of bands given that they can only do one thing, you know, if they're The Clash or whatever, they're going to do that thing with all their heart and soul and put everything they're worth into it. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're a band that could literally play anything at any time, how do you find your identity through that process? That's that's an interesting notion. Sure. And, you know, it is interesting because you mentioned The Clash. The Clash, in many ways, overachieved. Like they were a punk band who became something so much greater. You listen, you know, uh, several cuts deep into London Calling or even Combat Rock or even Sandinista, which was three albums long, which should not have been. But there were so many styles that they embraced and they did a great job um, embracing those styles. And it surprised 
confused a lot of people. I think in Toto's case, those guys were so accomplished and they were so complex. But I think sometimes they got away from writing great pop and even more tragically, in my opinion, great rock songs, which I think they should have done more of. Interesting that uh, keyboardist Steve Porcaro uh, went on to write uh, one of Michael Jackson's biggest songs, Human Nature. Right. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know whether he offered it to the band or not. Yeah, who knows? You know, that song, it's funny that you should say that, because they talk a little bit about the song 99 in this interview, and that song reminds me of 99, so it has a little bit of that same groove to it, in my opinion. Mm. Lukather talks here about the stage show the band had. When we're putting together a show, we have ideas that are definitely unfeasible. You know, it's, it's to, I mean, it's... You guys have obviously heard about the Pink Floyd show, right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I saw it. After that, there's nothing that can come close. Designed a stage or so. We have a really neat stage. And we have, you know, backdrops and weird lighting effects and stuff. But we just have a good time, you know. We like to have everybody have a good time. So we try to encourage that while we're playing. Yeah, so you're, so you're not doing the Fleetwood Mac thing where they go and videotape themselves on stage and then critique it afterwards. Well, we did that last tour, but we haven't done it as yet on this tour, which is something, it's good to do that, because you never know what it looks like, or sounds like, necessarily out front. Yeah. So, I mean, you're sort of leaving it up to the people that you hired, you know. I mean, you can see the, you know, feel the lighting changes and stuff, but you can never really see what it looks like, you know, the visual impact from, like, out in the audience. Isn't that interesting? So sometimes they would shoot videos of themselves in concert and watch it back, and they said that Fleetwood Mac did the same thing. Man, that is a lot of self-critique. How does a band even survive that? I actually think that's necessary, mm-hmm. because I, I don't think you really know... Well, first of all, I think they were talking about some of the technological aspects of it. Right. In other words, how does the lighting rig look from the audience point of view? But also, I think you get a, you got to get a sense of what you're doing on stage, if it's meshing with the other members of the band, just you know whether you're really connecting with an audience or not. I, I don't know. That type of self-critiquing, to me, really makes sense. That's really interesting, because I'd never really heard of that before, but you obviously had. Well, I think of it, I mean, even in radio, I mean, you have to do air checks of your own work occasionally just to know if you're putting out what you think you are. It is funny, because, man, I hate those. (laughs) I don't want to hear, especially (laughs) if something went wrong. So my boss recently said to me, uh, you know, we did a contest. I thought the contest went, uh, went fine. And she said, you know what? It didn't really go that well. I want you to listen to it again. And I said, there's no way I'm going to listen to that again. I just can't. It's cringeworthy to listen to your mistakes again. (laughs) Do you listen to Famous Lost Words? You're darn right. Right, I do. I listen to every single word several times on several different different devices. Let me take us back to Toto. We have one more <laughs> quote here from, okay. Lu- from Luke. Luke, as he was known. Oh, boy. Uh, he recalls what it was like being a top session player. Has the success of Toto changed your workload at all? Are you still having to go out and do a lot of studio gigs and stuff? Or are you well, that's the thing. Nobody has to do any of that. It's not, nobody has to do that for money or anything like that, you know? Uh-huh. You do because you want to. Because you want to play. I mean, I've done gigs for bread before. I'm not lying. But as far as, you know, if somebody calls me on the phone, you know, some of the dates that I've been doing, I mean, I've gotten to be on a lot of hipper records, you know, a lot and play with some of the real superstars, you know, that I think are superstars, you know, and work with those people. And because of this, you know, because I they grew to hear about it even more, hear about the cats in the band even more. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, most people don't call up like guys at Aerosmith and ask them to play on a record. You know? <laughs> no, I guess they wouldn't do that, would they? So that, I mean, that's why what puts us, I guess, in a different category than some of those other bands. 
nothing wrong with Aerosmith. I dig them. I think they're great. But, but you just wouldn't think of them as... Yeah, uh, you just wouldn't call those guys up for a day, you know, because of our past experience. Yeah. People call us and want, to talk, want us to play for them. Because we're, you know, we had reputations before we put the band together. That's funny. He keeps saying the word, like, cat and playing for bread. I thought, you know what? <laughs> I honestly Googled... Steve Lukather and Bread, thinking that he played with the band Bread. I wanted to get confirmation of that. And you pointed out in an email that, no, <laughs> he didn't mean the band Bread. He meant he's playing for money. I Very actually funny. had the same thought when I first heard him say that. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I've, he said, I played for Bread. And I thought, oh, did you? You know. Yeah. <laughs> but they were pretty good musicians. Why would they need you? <laughs> <laughs> this is the awesome 80s edition of Famous Lost Words. Mr. Tom Jokic has some cool song facts for us. Right, and Christopher, these are all 80s cool song facts. So first of all, the biggest selling 12-inch single of all time is from the 80s, and it is Blue Monday by New Order. Wow. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I wouldn't have called that one. One of my favorite 12-inch singles from that era is Nova Heart by The Spoons, which I believe is the biggest selling 12-inch single in Canadian history. Okay, Mike Score from Flock of Seagulls, whose haircut I am currently sporting for this episode, believes that some of his songs, like the song Wishing, do you remember that song? If I had a photograph of you. I've I've tried to forget. (laughs) He thinks that those songs not only hold up, but they stand up to the best songs by the Beatles and Tears for Fears. Interesting that he chose those two. (laughs) And he was also a hairstylist. Let's never forget that. Well, I actually think that he thinks the Flock of Seagulls music is as good as those other bands because he may have inhaled too much hairspray Mm. while creating his famous 80s haircut. I think think. that's exactly it. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, these first few cool song facts are taken from a book called Mad World by Laurie Majewski and Jonathan Bernstein, I think is his name. Now, Laurie's a broadcaster on Sirius XM, and I'm a big fan of her, so I really want to give a great shout-out to her about this book called Mad World, and it's a whole bunch of quick interviews, current interviews, with these artists from the 80s, including Duran Duran and Modern English and The Smiths and ABC and all these great groups that had a real big shining moment in the 80s and what happened to them afterwards, including including many of their feuds and how they tried to work them out, and sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't. So a lot of these facts are from that, including this one. The song I Melt With You by Modern English still holds up pretty well today, but did it ever occur to any of us... Yeah, I love that song. Yeah, but did it ever occur to any of us what that song is actually about? Hmm, no. (laughs) It's about a couple making love... As a nuclear bomb is dropping, and they are literally melting in the middle of that act. I melt with you. Isn't that terrible? Ooh. (laughs) You've just completely ruined that song for me. Thank thank you. you. Thank you. That's what I do. Okay. So remember the Joy Division song, Love Will Tear Us Apart, which was kind of their counter to Love Will Keep Us Together. That song was covered by (sighs) Paul Young. Okay. And he made it a bit more of a romantic version, and the guys from Joy Division hated it, hated it. But they made much more money from that version of that song than anything they did in Joy Division. A bitter truth. 
And here's one more, one more cool song fact. Actually, three more cool song facts from that book, Mad World by Laurie Majewski and Jonathan Bernstein. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, who we heard from a little bit earlier, were only supposed to play one gig in total, and they chose their name just to indicate that they were not a punk band. So no punk band, I guess, would call themselves Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. So Andy McCluskey says most of the lyrics and titles to their songs were written on his bedroom wall. Okay, that sounds like a Simon and Garfunkel lyric, I think. And they almost had a completely different band <laughs> name. Right under the name Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, on his bedroom wall, was the other name they were thinking about, and that's Margaret Thatcher's Afterbirth. <laughs> oh, yuck. <laughs> okay, uh, two more. Now that's a punk name. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Okay, so Ultravox, they had a couple big hits, including uh, Dancing with Tears in My Eyes, which is also about, you know, the bomb dropping. But uh, one of their biggest songs, especially in England, was a song called Vienna. And it came about because someone came up to the uh, mid-year and said, you need to do a song like that Fleetwood Mac song, Vienna. And he's going, Vienna? They don't do a song called Vienna. And he started singing, you know, Vienna. <laughs> <laughs> he was thinking of Rhiannon. He had no idea. So I they, love that. So they wrote the song Vienna. I love that fact. Okay, one more that fact. That is an excellent, excellent fact. Thank you. The song Original Sin by In Excess was a big hit, but many stations in the United States would not play it because it was about interracial relationships. Now, it originally was not because Michael Hutchins wrote, Dream on white boy, white girl. Dream on black boy, black girl. But... It was producer Niall Rogers, who was the child of an interracial couple, said, Michael, wouldn't it be more interesting if you said, dream on black girl, white boy, dream on uh, white boy, black girl, or whatever it was, that, that, those lyrics. Because his own parents were interracial, he thought it would sound better, and that's why the song has those lyrics, and that's why it actually makes it a better song, but many radio stations didn't play it for that reason. That is Excellent. You've outdone yourself here. <laughs> Thank you very much. Cool song facts, the 80s edition. Wake me up before you go, go. Don't leave me hanging on like a yo-yo. There you Wake go. Wake me up, up before you go-go by Wham. Okay, we have a phenomenal George Michael interview. An entire full-length interview that I want to play for you in the coming weeks. But I want to tease you here in this awesome 80s edition of Famous Lost Words with one quick clip from 2004. So George Michael is asked about the rumor of a Wham! musical. So a musical on Broadway that kind of incorporates the music of Wham! and listen to what he says. Well, the, the, actually two or three different um, producers got to get, have uh, approached us with different scripts. Um, I'm really torn here. I'm really torn because on one hand, I know an awful lot of people would love it. And I actually, I kind of, I would also, uh, it would be great for Andrew, obviously, because some he has publishing on some of these songs because people forget he co-wrote some of the Wham songs. Um, and that would be great. So, and I'd love to do that for him. At the same time, I just have this problem with... Um, you know, Wham was very close to pastiche quite often anyway. You know, whether you th when you think kind of Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go and Freedom stuff, I just have this this awful picture of kind of really badly stage-trained voices trying to sing Wham, and I think it might get even cheesier. <laughs> Whereas I think Wham is great cheese. You know, some of it was not cheese, but some of it was just great cheese. Fromage is our friend, as some people say. But... Uh, 
if you use the, if you take that just if you take the charm of of two kids that were so excited to be in the position that they were you know and the youth out of it if you take all of that out of it i just don't know what whether what's left is kind of cringeworthy i'm sure it would do incredibly well because they're the type of songs that would work well in in musical terms but i'm still i'm still kind of fighting my own snobbery over this one. What do you think? Do you think I should do it? I think that if it's going to happen, you should be involved with it to have control over what's going on. Oh, they can't make... I, I have to... I mean, I you have know, to give my permission anyway. But no, but I mean, songs. more than permission. I mean, what would you mm-hmm. think about being like an executive producer on something like this? Oh, I suppose that that's where the money is, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, I think That's so. definitely where the money is. Um, I don't know. I don't think... I, I think where the, the point I would have to start from is there would have to be a great story. Because, yes. you know, they weave... It wouldn't be the story of Andrew and I. I'm sure it would be some kind of romantic story. And if you could maybe tie it into the 80s, into some social phenomena from the 80s, then maybe it could work, you know. We'll, yeah. we'll see. We'll see. It's still. It's still. I'm still open to offers. Put it that way. I love fromage too. <laughs> Goodness knows. <laughs> he George, is, a man after my own heart. He is a great interview subject. He's so present. And I promise you, you will be so amazed with the George Michael interview that we have coming up in the next few weeks on Famous Lost Words. This is our awesome eighties edition. Let's go from "Wake Me Up Before You Go Go" to "Echo Beach." Tom Martha Johnson and Mark Game formed Martha and the Muffins in the late seventies and had a smash hit from their first album, Metro Music. You just played a little bit of Echo Beach. Now, a few years later, Jocelyn Lanois joined the band on bass, and she introduced them to someone. It was her brother, Daniel, at the time an unknown but very talented producer. He went on to work with them over a number of albums. And by 1983, Martha and Mark were ready to become a duo. And as Mark put it, quote, to shed the weight of the band's past and for me to escape being called a muffin. Okay, so this interview, this is really interesting what you're saying, because this interview is from 1980, right? So this is when they're just about ready to break out, and even then, the name was already an issue. Have a listen to this. Do you resent being referred to as a muffin? Well, it's, I must admit the, the name had its uses in our infancy, but um, I, don't, I don't get upset over it, but would you want to be called a muffin? No, probably not, no. It's a bit misleading now because, I mean, the band is six people and there's, although the other Martha, Martha Ladley and I do, do all the singing and are physically out front, I mean, it's a very democratic sort of thing and it, that's just the way it works out. So it's kind of bad having a name Martha and the Muffins because people think it's Martha and her ba- backup band, that's the Muffins. Right. So this is interesting because they actually came to regret changing the name because, well, as Mark said, most fans like the original name better. Right, and they changed the name to M plus M. And, you know, it really is interesting because they said that people had no idea that M plus M, the band that did Black Stations, White Stations, was the same group, Martha and the Muffins, that did Mm -hmm. Echo Beach. And so they lost a little bit in the translation there. But also what they said in that first clip is that with Martha and the Muffins, it made it sound like it was Martha Johnson's band and the Muffins were just a backup band and less important in the grand scheme of things when they really were a democratic entity. Now, you know, Mark and Martha were the main two people, so I don't know how democratic it was, but they wanted to give the appearance of a more cohesive uh, unit than the name of the band actually suggested. And we have to get to it. I don't know why we waited to the end, but mm-hmm. the timeless question, is Echo Beach real? Mark has an elegant explanation for that question. Echo Beach starts off the album, and it is the big tune. Is it a real place, or is it an imaginary? 
It doesn't exist. Um, A lot of people would like it to exist. Yes, in fact, we were um, on stage at the marquee, and somebody shouted out, Where's Echo Beach? (laughs) And it almost felt like we were disappointing them by saying, It's a... It doesn't exist. It's more about a state of mind rather than a place. It's about the space people keep to themselves that allows them to function in those situations. Because um, I've had lots of horrible jobs, and I I know there was there were some that were so boring. Your body could do it day after day, but your mind would be way off somewhere else, and uh, that's what that song's about. <laughs> We all know where Echo Beach is. Far away in time. Echo Beach, far <laughs> away in time. Famous Lost Words, the awesome 80s edition as we end with Martha and the Muffins. Special thanks to Adam Karsh, our producer, our executive producer, Rob Farina, and thank you, Christopher, for being here for our awesome 80s edition. Thank you, Tom. I want to say a shout-out to Tim Friedlander here at Soundbox LA, doing great work for us. Don't forget, you can follow Famous Lost Words on Facebook, or on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod.